Today's scripture reading is from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Colossians uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 2 to 6, which can be found on page 1167 of the Pew Bibles. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter sent to a group of Christians so many thousand years ago, and yet a living word that speaks to us today. God, we pray that we would attend to the living voice that once spoke those words and that speaks again to us today. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and lives ready to obey. In your name we pray, amen. Our city, the city of Toronto, is really a beautiful place. I hope you find it beautiful too. It is filled with so much goodness and glory. I mean, we got a city filled with some of the best restaurants. Isn't there a little glory of God in that? We've had TIFF for the past couple of weeks, brilliant films we could enjoy. The city is, is filled with so many beautiful people, like image bearers of the living God. Every human bear, being bears the image of God, which means in the city there is more image of God per square inch than any other place, right? The city's a beautiful place. The city's a broken place too, isn't it? You and I... In the city, it's like the brokenness of life. You can't avoid it. You can't look away. It is thrust in your face. In the homeless panhandler, in all the gun violence we see around, it's a broken place. It's beautiful and it's broken, and it is the place that God calls us to love in the name of Jesus. And so we are calling us to go all in on loving the city. Last week, this week, and next week, we are looking at um, sort of the, the theological vision for our church, giving people a, a sense of who we are, if you're a guest, a visitor, or if you're a regular, if you've been here 14 years or longer, a refresher course in who we are. And what we say about who we are as a church is we are a church that follows Jesus, loves the city, serves the world. Last week, we looked at following Jesus, how that is the, the, the central, the primary, the first step. That is the engine for all we do, and it's because we love Jesus that we go to the places that Jesus loves, and so we go to the city. We are called to love the city. There's a direct correlation between those two. And we love Jesus in the context of the city. This is our context. This beautifully broken post-Christian, post-modern, world-class, urban Canadian center called Toronto. This is the place that God has called us to serve and follow Him. 
And, you know, sometimes people look at the brokenness of the city and wish it was different. You know, you might wish for another place, for another time. You might wish for a, a time in which, you know, the city was more open or receptive to Christianity. That's, that's just not our day. This is the day given to us. This is the place given to us. And so we learn to love this place in Jesus' name. And we believe that our place in this city is no accident at all. We are here by God's design, by God's intent, by his provision. It was the leading of God that led this church, what had been established for about 100 years. So about 100 years ago, they came to this location, which was the burbs of the city of Toronto at the time. It was the Vaughan of Toronto at the time, right? That's what this was. And yet, in God's providential ordering of history, the city grew around us. And so now we are in the heart of this city, located in this heart. And so we are convinced that our call is to have a heart for the city while we are in the heart of the city. So we are all in, and we are calling everyone all in to love the city, to voluntarily give our hearts, to bind our happiness, our well-being with the well-being of the city. This is what the prophet Jeremiah called all the exiles, calls us to do. Seek the flourishing of the city because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so we rejoice in the beauty of the city and we weep over its brokenness. And that, that's a daunting call, isn't it? That's an overwhelming call, especially in a big, complex city like Toronto. The problems in Toronto are complicated and layered and nuanced. I mean, and there is so much, the breadth of what needs redemption and healing and restoration is so big. I mean, you can just list them all, right? Inaccessible housing market, transit, poverty, gun violence, so much more. So how do we love and serve Jesus in the midst of all that's going on? Well, today's scripture reading I think provides us with some very concrete, very accessible, practical directives for us to love the city. This is going to be a less of why we love the city and more so a sense of how can we do this practically. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of Christians in a city called Colossae. And Colossae was, was surrounded by the Roman Empire. It was located in the midst of this massive Roman Empire and their Christians were living as a minority living as a minority in, in what's probably a hostile environment for them. And all around them were signs of Roman empire and Roman might, Roman military might, worship of various deities, including Roman Caesars who were considered gods, in which all the people were, were called to offer worship to. They were filled in a society where there was oppressive tax structures, where there was a culture of indulgence, so you wonder, and the, the church is wondering, how do we live as a witness, as a meaningful witness of Jesus Christ in the middle of that sort of world? What is our daily life? How does that contribute in any way to demonstrating something of God's kingdom? And so Paul writes in chapter 4, a really simple call for loving their location in Jesus' name. He offers two commands, two everyday acts that serve the one mission. Now, the one mission of the church, of course, is that we demonstrate, whether in word or in our actions, we demonstrate the kingdom of God, the beauty, the wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Now today, as we talk about the mission of God, there's a lot of talk about the mission of God being involved, uh, the acts of kindness, of service, of relationship building. You probably heard lots about that. Christians talking about incarnation and ministry and peacemaking and creation care and justice seeking as, as a demonstration of God's reign. And it is, and I'm so glad for the, what seems to be a reclamation of the larger mission of God. I'm so delighted. But I have a concern too. <laughs> Because if we never get around in all those good deeds to announcing the name of Jesus and declare that Jesus is king over all and demands allegiance from every woman, man, child on this earth, if we never get around to that, we've, we've reduced the mission of God. You've probably heard a very familiar quote that's offered up. Um, it's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. There's not real accurate record that it is him. But anyway, it goes this way. Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. You've probably heard that, right? A trouble I have with that is that I often, that's often used by people who shy away from saying anything about Jesus. And if that's the case, that's not being missional. There's a South African theologian, David Bush, who, in response to that misused quote, got so frustrated with it, he says, of course words are necessary, right? Of course they're there. He said, unexplained deeds in themselves do not constitute the mission of God. Unexplained deeds. Deeds are necessary, yes, but unexplained deeds do not constitute the mission of God. So a vital part of our mission in the city of Toronto is not to model the kingdom, but to explain and name the name of Jesus Christ. And there's good reason for this, because look at who Jesus is. I mean, earlier on in the book of Colossians, in this letter, Paul spells out the absolute stunning, magnificent, and splendor of who this Jesus is. And so Paul says, you know, in a world where the image of Caesar is everywhere, this counterfeit image of the good life that Rome offers, here is the true God. Jesus Christ, he says, is the image of the living God, the flesh and blood picture of the living God. Jesus, he says, is the source of all things, everything in the universe, things you can see visible, things you can't see invisible, whatever it is, outer space, urban space, cyberspace, all things have been created in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the source, the purpose, the goal of everything in this universe. He is the sovereign king. All the powers and authorities that gets exercised through rulers and principalities, it comes from Jesus. He is before all things and everything, Paul says, everything is held together in Jesus. That's just a breathtaking picture of Jesus. This is who we follow. Jesus is not just one of many gods. No, no, no. He is the sovereign king over all. He is not merely a good teacher, a spiritual guru. No, he is life itself. And in the city of Toronto, you and I, church, we are the flesh and blood embodiment, the living witness of that Jesus Christ. This is our call, this is our mission, to love the city by bearing witness through word and deed to the good news of Jesus Christ. And to participate in that one mission, Paul gives two commands. 
to, and really everyday acts of love, which is really beautiful because when you see that stunning portrait of Jesus, you think, wow, to, to accurately represent that Jesus, I got to do something equally big, right? Paul gives us two very everyday acts to embody that witness. First, he says, pray. Devote yourselves to prayer. Would you pray for the city of Toronto? Pray with a watchful mind, with a heart full of gratitude in your neighborhood, in your workplace, as Ali talked about, among your friends, for your professors, your co-students, as you read the news about Toronto and all the needs of the city. Pray for your mayor. Pray for the city council. Pray for the good news of Jesus and his kingdom to be known and expressed and lived out here in this city. I mean, if we're genuinely convicted about who Jesus is, as he is Christ is the supreme one over all, that his reign, his life brings flourishing and healing and blessing to all, then shouldn't we be found on our knees regularly, praying fervently? Paul says, pray and pray with gratitude. He says, I love this. Where at work do you see good happening in this city that you can be thankful for? So often when we're moved to prayer, we pray for what's broken, what's wrong. And that's a good thing. We need to do that. But Paul says, pray with gratitude too. Where can you thank God for? Where in your neighborhood is there all sorts of good that you can bless and thank God for? Right? What is City Hall doing well? We love to crab about City Hall, don't we? And how they're just getting it. Where is the mayor and the councilors getting it right? How about we pray for that and bless them for that? Pray for your professors and school administrators. Pray with gratitude for your coworkers, for your supervisors at work, for those you supervise. Thank God for their, thank God for the work you have to do, for the company you work for and the good that it is doing. Pray for, with gratitude for all the artists in this world, in our city, who are often working extra jobs to try to fulfill their calling to communicate through the arts. Thank God for them. Pray with an alert mind and with a grateful heart, Paul says. Pray. Don't we regularly underestimate the power of prayer? And it's not prayer itself that's powerful. It's the one to whom we pray that's powerful. I think we've been deflected a lot from prayers because, you know, in response to a lot of tragedies, mostly in the United States, you often hear, well, we extend our thoughts and prayers. And there's been a reaction to that saying, that's not enough. Thoughts and prayers, pfft. And it's not enough. We need to act. But prayers, I want to I argue for. Yes, it is a vital first instinct that we are called to pray, friends. If Jesus Christ is who he says he is, if all things hold together in Jesus, if he's the one in whom all these things hold together, in whom the city is held together, then our prayers are the most accessible, important acts we can do to love our city. Now, it's interesting in this passage, Paul calls for prayer, and it's focused in on the evangelistic ministry that the church has. There's a clear sense that that uh, some people are gifted as evangelists, and 
Paul's calling, pray for them. Pray for the spread of the message of Christ. There are evangelists who announce the good news in in public places. As a pastor, that's part of my calling. Some of you, you're gifted. You're called to this work of evangelism. And Paul calls for the church to pray for these people. Would you pray for boldness for us? Pray for clarity so that we're able to communicate Jesus Christ in in, in a way that our post-Christian world understands and gets. Pray for the message of Christ in the city. Pray for open doors, for opportunities for that message to flow out. Pray for our Alpha program as it's beginning soon. Pray for invitations that are being extended. But take note here. Well, Paul calls everyone to pray for his and the church's ministry of evangelism. You'd think if if he was calling everyone to that work, he would say, and now I want to pray for you and your call to evangelism. But he doesn't. He says something different. He says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. I want you to be wise in how you conduct yourselves. I want you to make the most of every opportunity you have in your social circles, in your networks, with the people you know. I want you to know how to answer everyone. This is a fascinating thing. I don't think Scripture calls everyone to be an evangelist. So you can just breathe a sigh of relief right now, okay? Those of you who aren't. It's like, thank God. I know you're feeling that, right? You're not. So you're, God does not call everyone to be an evangelist. Now, we are all called to be witnesses. Not, we're not getting you off the hook of that. We're all called to be witnesses. There's the distinction. But for most of us, the primary way we will witness will not be boldly proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus Christ in public ways, in public settings. The primary way we read from this passage that most of us are going to participate in God's mission will be in response to people's questions. Be ready, he says, to answer people's questions. For most of us, as we live our everyday lives in our shops and offices, at school, home, in our communities, in our sports teams, in pubs, for most of us in our everyday lives, the way we participate is in response to people's questions. And why will people ask questions? Because we will have been living lives that people take note of, and it evokes curiosity. Because we will have lived a life that says, there is another way. Because we will live lives worth questioning. One uh, Australian author and missiologist, Michael Frost, puts it this way, we will live a questionable life. We will have lived a questionable life. This is the second command or way, everyday way, we can live out that one mission. The first, to pray. The second, live a questionable life. A life that is so distinctly different than all the others around that people begin to ask questions. Like, what are you about? And at that point, Paul says, then be ready to talk about Jesus. But are people asking you questions? No one is going to ask us questions if we just live exactly like everyone else around us, right? If we just live in the same way, spend the same way, have the same views as everyone, if our life looks just exactly the same as everyone else around us, what possibly could people ask about us? 
It's fascinating how in the early church, in a place like Colossae, but all over, it was the simple, everyday, yet utterly distinct life of the church that turned the Roman Empire upside down. The Roman people across the Roman Empire saw something in the Christian church that was so unique and distinct, and they asked questions, and they said, tell me more about this, and the whole Roman Empire was changed because of that. It's interesting, in the fourth century, one Roman Empire, uh, Julian the Apostate, he's called, he was an enemy of Christianity, and he got, he got so concerned, so agitated about the spread of Christianity um, that he wrote a letter to all his Roman governors across the Roman Empire, and he said, listen, we are losing control of this. We got to fix things. We got to do something about it. We have that letter, and here's what it says. He says, it is disgraceful that when no Christian has ever had to beg, and the impious Galileans, that's what they called Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. He says, listen, we are failing. And his big concern was Christians were living such good lives, they would, they would treat women in such radically different ways, that women were sisters. They treat slaves as brothers. They would tend the sick. They would tend the graves of people who were not their own. They give radically and generously. And because of that, the whole Roman Empire, which looked so solid, so forever, was upended and transformed. Do you want to see the city of Toronto transformed? Do you want to love your city, your little part of the city, your neighborhood, your workplace? then live a questionable life. <laughs> live so rooted in the gospel that people look and say, you gotta tell me more because I don't get you. Church, love this city by living out the values of the reign of Jesus. Think of the ways that can happen. In our age of, of so much information and spin and rage and talk, listening, maybe one of the most precious Jesus gifts you can give to people. I'm convinced that the rage and rant on all our social media is so voluminous because people just want to be heard and no one's listening. But can we patiently just listen, hear the heart cry of so many people around you so that they know I am known, I'm seen by someone? You do that and people are going to start to wonder about you. We live in one of the loneliest eras in history. It is the bitter fruit of the individualist ethos that has plagued our culture. And yet, when you open up your home, if we would open up our lives, if our families and our homes would become places where others who are so lonely would find a place, a meaningful place to participate in, would be considered part of the family, that's going to provoke some questions, isn't it? In our career culture of ladder-climbing success, where colleagues will gladly step over you to get ahead, for you to serve the best interests of your colleagues, for you to give them all the proper credit for a project that you worked on together, for you to make space for them to shine, that's intriguing. That'll cause someone to stop and ask some questions. In our hypersexualized day, where sexual expression of any sort is held up as an essential right, to hold to a Christian ethic, to say, I am not my own. My body belongs to Christ. 
That's a radical thing. And so singles, when you remain chaste, when everyone else is hooking up, and married couples, when you remain faithful and cherish your spouse, even in the midst of hard seasons, that is something distinct. That's intriguing. Or think of this, in our culture, which avoids suffering and death, it really has no category for finding meaning in suffering. And when those who do suffer some debilitating illnesses are left alone to suffer all by themselves, or maybe in a hospice, and so therefore are just moved to seek an early death, what might a questionable life look in that scenario? Do you know Stephen Colbert? He's the host of The Late Show. This past August, there was the most fascinating interview with him and another uh, CNN um, news guy, Anderson Cooper. Google it, okay? Watch the interview. It's about, I don't know, a 15-minute interview. It's a brilliant thing. So Stephen Colbert lost his mother. Anderson Cooper lost his mother. Stephen Colbert writes a card to Anderson Cooper just expressing kind compassion. An everyday act of simply being present to someone suffering in their grief. And so Cooper brings Colbert on his show, and they talk about grief and death. And as in the interview, there's a fascinating moment where Cooper is reflecting, Anderson Cooper is reflecting on Stephen Colbert's words to him about the death of his mother, choking, literally choking back tears, right? Cooper asks, you said, Stephen, what punishments of God are not gifts. And he said, do you really believe that? Like he's startled by that. The punishments of God, what punishments of God are not gifts? Do you really believe that? And Colbert pauses and he says, yes. He says, it is a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. And then Colbert goes on and talks about, he's a Christian, he talks about his faith. And he goes on to say that either we're grateful for all of life, including the difficult parts, or we're grateful for none of it. And in that little exchange of two men grieving their mothers, I I looked at that and I thought, that is exactly what Paul is calling us to here, to live such a life that provokes questions. Colbert's understanding, his Christian understanding about suffering and how all of life, even the most difficult parts of life, how it leads us to embrace suffering, not deny it, but embrace it, even with gratitude. That's so distinct. That's intriguing. That's a questionable life. I'm convinced that a Christian perspective on suffering in life, on finding meaning and hope in all of life, even some of the most hardest, most difficult parts, is probably one of the most distinct ways we can live. Because everyone hurts. Everyone suffers. But no one knows what to do with it. And we live in a culture that denies that stuff. You know, paste that shiny, happy face on. So how can we show people who hurt that even in their suffering, they're not alone because the God who suffers is with them. And therefore, we are with them. That's living a questionable life. We could talk about a lot more, couldn't we? A lot of different ways in which we need to live a questionable life. But I love how Paul leaves it quite open. Be wise in how you live your lives. He's, getting, he's, he's not prescribing exactly how you do it. He's just saying, consider your life, consider your cultural context, be wise in your, how you live so that your life 
as it reflects Jesus, provokes questions. We are as a church called to live such questionable lives, and that may actually be the best form of loving our city. We love this city because God loves it. God is committed to seeing the renewal of all things, of every street and business, every home and office. And the wonder, the beauty of Christianity is that God accomplishes that through everyday acts of obedience, through simple prayers that His church offers, and through everyday lives that are distinctive with the grace and the gospel of Jesus. Let's go be those people who love the city. Let's pray. Let's take a moment of quiet and reflect and listen to what God's Spirit may be saying to us. Father, we thank you that you love this city of Toronto. You love it more than we can imagine. Thank you for calling each one of us to our different places in the city, whether we're here to study, whether we're here for work, living in the city, enjoying it. God, you've called us here. And we pray now that you would use our lives individually but collectively too as a church to so love the city, to so show the city something beautifully unique in Jesus. God, may the city rejoice because of the church, not only Knox, but all the churches in this city, as we faithfully witness to the beauty, the wonder of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.